Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Uh, welcome from Glasgow. Uh, today we're talking COP. My name is Geoffrey Norris. I'm a senior advisor at Global Council, and I'm joined by my two colleagues, Charlie Roberts and Lila Housen-Smith. Can I start, Charlie, with you? Um, can you give us a quick explainer on COP? So in Glasgow at the moment, we've got lots of police, got some protesters, we've got oodles of corporate activity, but what is COP itself actually about? So uh, the UNFCCC COPs uh, started in the early 90s with the UN uh, Convention on Climate Change. There were uh, 192 parties or countries that are now a member of these that have committed to meet up every year to discuss progress on climate change. Uh, arguably very little was coming of it for, for several years. There were some big announcements around 2009 in Copenhagen and uh, around the Kyoto Protocol a few years prior to that, which everyone may be familiar with or heard of, but it wasn't really until 2015 uh, when the Paris Agreement was signed that it began to get real um, mainstream media coverage in a sense that there was a, a global progress towards uh, tackling climate change together. And that was partly because the focus shifted from being different goals for developing countries and different goals for developed countries to being unified targets uh, that all countries committed to meet together as a collective. So the real reason that COP26 then has been seen as a really important um, marker in that, so that's where we are now in Glasgow, is that it would have always have been very significant because it's the first formal check-in after the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement committed to keep uh, global warming to below two degrees and in theory, all parties to that were required to submit increased uh, emissions reduction targets for 2030 or nationally determined contributions as they're known that uh, set out how they are gonna meet this goal of keeping warming below two degrees. Uh, that's, that's in theory the idea that COP26 was meant to do. There was also other key deadlines. So uh, all developed countries I mentioned earlier at Copenhagen in 2009 committed to mobilize 100 billion uh, in climate finance annually for developing countries. The deadline for that was this year. Um, that's, that's the kind of summary of how we got here to COP. So that's uh, a bit about what COP's about. Now, uh, this week, so it's a two week long gathering. Uh, we're coming up to half time. Uh, in the first week, we've had an absolute flurry of announcements. Charlie, can we unpack some of these announcements and their significance a bit? Yeah, definitely. So there's actually been um, quite a few major shifts, which has been exciting to see. There was an element of doubt coming into these uh, two weeks that it wouldn't be possible for some of the key goals that I just talked about to be met. So there was a report on delivering climate finance that suggested that the 100 billion target wouldn't be able to be met until 2023. And there was also another analysis by the UN that suggested that even with all the uh, quite ambitiously increased emissions reduction targets, we saw so the US putting theirs up to 
emissions reduction by 2030, the EU doing very similar. Even with all of that, we were still on track for warming to be 2.7 degrees. So there was a bit of uh, doubt and expectation management coming in, but we've actually seen, uh, despite that, there's still been some major new commitments on climate finance. So Japan's offered up to 10 billion additional in climate finance over five years. The UK is contributing an extra 3 billion on top of the 11 billion it's already committed. So although this uh, is still probably not quite enough to meet the 100 billion, and it's certainly not enough from the perspective of developing countries, it brings the 100 billion goal more into focus. And in theory, when climate finance has been a big barrier to developing countries bringing forward more ambitious emissions reductions targets, it's definitely uh, changed the, the frame that uh, some of these countries are approaching COPIN. But more notable really than the climate finance is that again, refuting the report on warming that was released before the event, the climate pledges that have been made at the conference, in particular, the headline commitment we saw from India to reach net zero by 2070 is now estimated to, that we could now uh, bring, keep warming under two degrees. It's possible that uh, as according to the International Energy Agency, that warming would be able to be kept at 1.8 degrees, uh, which is actually, it doesn't sound like a big difference, but is, uh, very, very significant. This is the first time that it's been estimated it would be possible for warming to be kept under those and uh, with the impacts of climate change uh, drastically changing with every 0.1 degree that's avoided, it's a very significant thing. We've also obviously seen some of the other yeah. uh, pledges coming out. So we've seen the ones that I would highlight really are, are the pledge we saw just yesterday on phasing out coal power. So that's going to, by 20, over 40 countries committed to phase out coal power by the 2030s for wealthier countries and then 2040s for developing countries. And although some really big names didn't sign up, so China, India, Australia, the US, uh, some of the ones which also are very ma major consumers of coal, like Indonesia, Vietnam, Poland, did sign up, which is a big shift really in the uh, the approach they were willing to take to these, which were pretty reluctant to make big commitments on domestic phase out on coal at least. Charlie, I think there was a little bit of understatement there in relation to coal. I mean, the fact is that the major users of coal didn't sign up to this agreement. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's still the, uh, obviously the international uh, financing of coal aspect, which uh, those big emitters did sign up to. But I mean, I definitely agree that the COP26 presidency definitely will be disappointed that they couldn't even get a date from yeah. China, India, Australia, and you know, no one's saying that they even had to set a near-term date, but I think even just having a, a mid-century target for India seems, and Australia seems shocking considering they've both now set net zero targets, uh, well, but the assumption is that will emerge. Burning coal seems to me pretty fundamental to tackling climate change. Can I ask you a bit about India? Um, at first blush, a commitment in 2017 doesn't sound that ambitious, but I think first blush is wrong. Yeah, there was definitely a, you definitely saw, I would say, almost two different reactions. So there were lots of people who were, the, the reaction you saw from some people was, you know, well, why even bother setting it if you're setting it for 2070? Even the, the less ambitious nations like, China and Russia setting 2060 targets was criticized. So there's definitely an element that where it feels that's such a distant uh, date that is it even of value? But actually I think 
Uh, as I said, it's been estimated that if they did meet that, that would be able to keep warming under two degrees, which is massive. And more significant than that is the other commitments they made, so the nearer term targets. So obviously 2070 is the net zero date, but more importantly, uh, at least at COP26, is the 2030 emissions reduction commitments. So what India did commit to is to meet 50% uh, of their energy demand by renewables by 2030. I mean, most of their emissions are coming from energy generation. So if they did that, that's already a massive uh, reduction in emissions. That's actually much more than some of the more developed countries, certainly the US uh, is expected to reach. No, I agree that the, the renewables thing in particular is hugely important. The other thing is the fact, it, the fact that India is actually being cooperative. Uh, yeah, in these discussions the uh, exactly. is an enormous step forward, given actually what happens in India is pretty critical uh, to this process. Lila, can I turn to you? Um, you can't move in Glasgow, but for corporate ads uh, extolling the virtue of this or that company and their contribution to saving the planet. Can you say a little bit about the role of uh, corporates and the private sector in COP? Uh, and also, I mean, what is it that business is actually looking for from COP by being involved in this? So I think part of it um, kind of comes down to the direction that government has set for the private sector and corporate. So this, this is a government that sees private finance at the absolute heart of its green agenda. And it sees the fact that it's able to set sort of regulatory or um, sort of uh, near-term targets as a mechanism to direct private finance. So then you get corporates also committing to similar goals or actually kind of putting in the funding that will help us get there. And I think it is no coincidence that a lot of corporates have got involved in COP. I think the government has really sought to mobilize that activity also think because it was delayed by a year, you've had corporates looking for a political or policy moment to show their green credentials. And COP is kind of as good a moment as any, and there's clearly a lot of attention on it. Um, I think it's also fair to say that this is an area where government wants to highlight its own progress in terms of um, the fact that the, the green finance agenda has been progressed quite seriously by the treasury. Um, the treasury is often kind of seen as slightly missing in action on various green announcements, but clearly in this area, you know, Rishi Sunak has been quite front-footed. You've had the Mark Carney um, Global Finance Alliance for Net Zero, which is also kind of supporting this. So you've just got a sort of a lot of bodies and um, key figures really engaged. And COP was obviously the culmination of that. It supports the momentum that they're trying to create through um, the sort of previous announcements and, and their positioning on this. Okay, so <clears throat> we're roughly at the halfway point. Uh, this weekend, I think the action shifts to the street, as it were, in that I think this is the weekend of protest. Uh, and it will be interesting to see how that goes. But Charlie, can we focus a bit on what to expect in the second half of COP? What are the things that we should be looking out for? Uh, sure. And what should be the things that will mark out success or failure? Sure, so I think um, to an element, it's already 
to an extent, sorry, it's already been going on in the background, but it's been kind of drowned out by some of the kind of glitzier announcements we've already had. But the real focus of next week will be turning to the slightly less glamorous uh, element of finalizing kind of outstanding parts of the Paris rule book. Uh, the main focus will be Article 6, which governs rules around international carbon trading. That's really a real crucial um, agreement and a resolution that COP26 needs to find. It's been a, a barrier at previous COPs for the last few years. And there are three really key elements that uh, have just absolutely stalled talks before. So one being how to resolve avoiding uh, the double counting of carbon credits and uh, how to account for internationally transferred emissions and where those should be counted. Uh, there's also another thing which has been uh, very much polarized between member states of the Paris Agreement, which is preventing uh, the surplus credits from the Kyoto Protocol or CERs from being carried over and counted towards uh, uh, parties, NDCs. So it's been a barrier in the past because several countries, mainly India, China and Brazil, have accumulated really significant volumes of these credits and don't want to see them literally just wiped off their, what they see as their kind of balance sheet of emissions, while others like the EU would argue that they're very low integrity credits and if they're allowed to be traded, it would flood the international carbon markets and undermine uh, any integrity of this trading. And then thirdly, whether a portion of the proceeds from voluntary carbon credits trading should be uh, dedicated to climate change mitigation adaptation in developing countries. And I think, as I said, there's a sense that it's almost the last chance to make progress on this because negotiations have failed uh, last year in the summer. Um, but it seems there's kind of some slow progress happening already. Uh, people are concerned, obviously, that they won't be able to meet resolution by the end of next week. But uh, there was a draft text actually uh, released last night, which suggests that uh, it now states that Kyoto credits will not be able to be used. And if that agreement has been met, uh, that's actually been such a major hurdle with uh, the different countries' positionings on it. And it's probably partly due to Brazil stating that they're gonna approach this year with a much more, uh, they're keen not to be seen to be the barrier this year to talks. Um, but there are still 373 areas apparently of uh, disagreement. So there's quite a long way to go to reach it. Oh, 373. 373, they've, they've bracketed at all aspects of article six, which are still need to be agreed. And, that's another concern they have, but there are lots, of, there are so many different technical areas that even if they're not seen as the major ones or they're not the three that I highlighted, just from the sheer number that there is to get through because of the delay of COP, um, it, there's been concern that just them, they might not be able to reach a deal due to some quite Charlie, minor can you, elements. Can you just summarize for me, for the non-expert like myself, South. What is the significance of an agreement uh, on Article 6 for actually tackling climate change? So, I mean, in theory, I think the idea is that it would speak quite to the heart of the of the whole uh, goal of the Paris Agreement, which is to make uh, meeting emissions reductions uh, a global project or an international project where everyone, in theory, although we have different uh, emissions reductions targets at a national level as a recognition that it is ultimately a global exercise and different countries have capacities uh, to reduce emissions and others don't and others have capacities to sequester emissions in the ways that others don't. So the idea is that if there is 
proper agreement met and a real framework set in place, then it could mean that um, the idea that some countries are going to have to uh, be penalized when they're already not emitting much uh, will go away because they will be able to be paid to sequester emissions while uh, other countries who are already ahead of meeting their targets can uh, help out, can compensate more easily for countries that don't have the capacity. So, I mean, so I it's think linked, it's, still... it's, yeah, it's linked then to sort of carbon trading. Absolutely, yeah. System where kind of markets and regulations seek out the most co cost-effective way of reducing emissions. Exactly, yeah, that's the goal to make it more cost-effective and also more um, fair. I mean, I think, as you can hear, it still feels like such a high level and challenging concept and very complex, which again is a reason that the talks have stalled uh, for so long. Um, that I think even if there is an agreement met, it will still be very high level and the actual details will be finalized for several years. And the way we would see it emerge is through increasing numbers of pilot projects or bilateral agreements uh, between countries that we're already seeing. So Sweden has bilateral agreements essentially are serving as pilots for Article 6 with um, Ghana and Vietnam, amongst others. Lila, can I um, ask you, so in the run-up to COP, uh, most of the media became pretty downbeat, uh, and then there was a lot being made of the fact that the Chinese and the Russians heads of state weren't turning up. Was this kind of, but we then seem to have had, uh, you know, a very positive first half uh, of COP, um, which has kind of slightly defied those expectations. Was this kind of media management by the British government or, or what? Yeah, so I think there was some kind of brilliant expectation management and clearly kind of quite a lot of effort went into that expectation management. I mean, kind of, Boris Johnson's clear sort of metaphors and analogies around this weren't made up on the hoof. He was trying to express something that he'd been advised by um, people that were much closer to this, so on, on the COP team in the UK government. But I also think the fact is the bad news almost came out to preempt it, it, it enough in advance of the sort of actual event itself in terms of you know Russia and China not being involved that actually there was always a good chance that the narrative could turn if they were able to get agreement on those kind of crucial areas some of which Charlie's mentioned I think there was also a bit of a strategic focus on those countries um, like Poland like Indonesia who have a real um, role to play on sort of uh, on 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 coal um, to focusing on those and getting those kind of tier two countries I think they're sometimes referred to as involved and brought into the negotiations. I also think that what we kind of all forgotten about COP is that by bringing together a lot of corporates, a lot of um, different delegations from countries across the world, it does demonstrate momentum and it can act as a bit of an accelerator. It puts an important focus on on these kind of issues. And that is meaningful in itself. And I think that was slightly lost in the kind of doom, of doom and gloom of the couple of weeks before. So I don't think it's quite been the dramatic turnaround that everyone um, kind of seems to think it has been. But also, I do think that there has been some, some good um, expectation management. Let's turn to the domestic UK politics of climate change, uh, if we can. Uh, 
I'd, in my mind, Boris Johnson's commitment to tackling climate change is undoubted. Uh, and at the top of this government, uh, I have absolutely no doubt that they are seriously committed to it. Uh, that commitment has different degrees and you can have an argument about the treasury or whatever. That's not really the same though as today's Conservative Party, which to an outsider like myself appears to have quite a strong uh, climate change skeptic streak. Now it's kind of transformed itself from being straightforwardly skeptical to now focusing on uh, the cost of transition is too great or uh, the Chinese aren't making their fair share. But I mean, if you look at conservative publications and websites, there is a fairly consistent drumbeat of this stuff. Uh, is this just a passing phase? And will success at Glasgow kind of be a bit of a nail in the coffin of this trend in the Conservative Party? Or is this trend uh, going to be something that we all need to watch very carefully? I what I would say about that group in the Conservative Party that you mentioned is that they're quite small, but they're quite powerful and they're very good at using the media to mobilise that sort of sentiment that you referred to. So I think it, it would be wrong to be sceptical of anything that Steve Baker's involved in, given his kind of role in the catalyzing the Brexit debate. I think he won't have the same effect here. I just don't think there's the same... Um, level of climate scepticism in the Conservative Party, but clearly he can provoke a series of questions around cost um, that will create a bit of tension. I think the problem for the government is that with COP, actually, they have kind of glossed over a lot of these kind of, um, a lot of what's required because of their near-term um, targets and their kind of specific, um, sector-specific targets. So if you take heat pumps and EVs, for example, you've got kind of very serious um, kind of targets on number of heat month pumps to be deployed. And you've got um, a phase out date for ICE vehicles um, in the UK, both coming in less than 10 years. So yeah, so we're talking kind of really quite short timeframes, but you've got a conservative government. And I think this does extend right up to the prime minister who's totally behind those targets and sees the logic of it, but who is still very reluctant to talk about one, what this will require in terms of changes to consumer and household behaviours, so i.e. kind of ripping out your boiler and being prepared to install a heat pump and also the accompanying insulation that might go with that, but also quite reluctant to really talk about the upfront costs and make the case that while there are upfront costs, there might be sort of longer term savings. And I think what COP, what COP did was it kind of created the momentum to get towards those targets and start some of that kind of consulting and policy making around it and how you might get there. But I think the government has still not had a particularly honest conversation with the British public about what will be required. And the problem is with this climate skeptic group, if they are able to get there first and have um, and sort of shape those debates, I think it will be quite difficult for Boris Johnson and other cabinet ministers to really make the case that this is worthwhile and necessary so that's the kind of tension and I think it will be interesting kind of coming out of COP if they use this as a bit of a um, reprise and basically decide to, to not wrestle with those decisions immediately or they use the consensus momentum built around COP to say right now is the now is the time 
um, to begin to have those slightly more difficult conversations. And, and you can tell that Boris Johnson is, is sort of thinking about that in terms of his comments, I think, recently about kind of how that bright recycling and plastics can only go so far. But actually, the messaging so far has been quite mixed. So it will be interesting, I think, to see in, in, in the coming sort of six months whether there's progress made on this and therefore whether these climate skeptics kind of will have a case. So I think that's a very interesting framing of the potential choice facing Boris uh, coming out from Glasgow. Does it give him momentum to go further on some of the specifics on which he's being reluctant to make decisions? Uh, or does he attempt basically to postpone difficult decisions until after the next general election? Uh, I think that's going to be a very interesting framing uh, of the next couple of years. Charlie, can I turn to you and um, ask you for your judgment? Uh, does Glasgow join Paris as uh, a kind of key milestone on the journey to 2050? I mean, it's we're only halfway through Glasgow, but is your judgment that we will uh, in future years look back on Glasgow as being a significant in Paris? on our journey to net zero? I, I mean, I think definitely. I mean, there's also, there's the element that some cops have been significant for whether they're seen as, as failures, as much as successes, but I mean, uh, I think- Copenhagen, that's Copenhagen is remembered exactly. really as a failure, yeah. Um, but um, I think from my perspective, I mean, there's, like you said, there was expectation management coming into it. And I think there was a readiness uh, kind of because of the pressure built up to call it a failure before it even started. But the fact is if we, it really did mobilize the emissions reduction uh, commitments that were needed and it's not particularly glamorous and lots of the commitments were made before the conference itself, which in a way deflates some of that. You know, I think if you'd had Australia, Brazil, Russia, China making their net zero commitments at the conference, no one would be saying that it was underwhelming. But if we can leave it knowing that we're kind of on track for, to keep warming below two degrees. That was the ultimate goal of the Paris Agreement and it's in theory what COPs delivered. And if Article 6 can be finalised and the Paris Agreement can be said to be able to start being fully implemented, I think that's a success. Uh, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, although there's still some stuff to finalise, there was some really high level commitments made that have kind of set it up to be significant, no matter how it ends up being resolved next week. That so may be optimistic. No, I think that upbeat assessment is uh, a good point for us to end and for us to simply flag that these issues are ones that Global Council uh, is going to come back to post-COP. Uh, and in particular, we're interested in looking at the economics of decarbonisation and reaching net zero, which is going to be a theme that we're going to be looking at in the first half of next year. But anyway, so farewell from Glasgow. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.